You know, days I have to fly somewhere can be some of the most frustrating days of my year. And I have no doubt that much of that frustration begins with long security lines. It does. However, it turns out that these lines are there for a reason, and it all begins with a single airline hijacking in 1971. So let's let's back up a little bit uh, even before then. The 1960s, but in particular the 1970s, make up the so-called golden era of airliner hijackings. I like I like that. That's... Who who did that? Who called it? I think, that? I'm just going to say the <laughs> FBI. Uh, okay. This is before searches and security measures that we know were put in place at airports, so it was really easy to bring a weapon aboard. The first hijacking to take place in America happened on May the 1st, 1961, and Tulio Ramirez Ortiz threatened the pilot and co-pilot of a National Airlines flight en route to Key West with a knife and a gun. He demanded to go to Cuba, and the plane returned safely to Florida after dropping him off. He was arrested 14 years later in Miami, trying to re-enter the United States. 1972 alone saw 31 hijackings in U.S. airspace, 19 of which were done for money. And there is one reason for this, and let's set that scene. On November the 24th, 1971, on Thanksgiving Eve, a man carrying a black briefcase identifies himself as Dan Cooper and purchases a one-way ticket from Portland to Seattle on Northwest Flight 305. The 30-minute flight took place on a Boeing 727-100. Its tail number was N467US. Upon taking a seat in the rear of the cabin, and I love this, he lit a cigarette yep. and ordered a bourbon with soda. Different different times. <laughs> the flight was only about one-third full and took off on time at 2.50 p.m. Eyewitnesses on board record a man in his mid-40s, between 5 feet 10 inches and 6 feet tall. He wore a black raincoat, dark suit, and a white-collared shirt. He was wearing a black necktie, which had a mother-of-pearl tie pin attached. After takeoff, Cooper passed a note to Florence Schaffner, a flight attendant at the back of the cabin. At first, she didn't open it, assuming she was being hit on by yet another lonely businessman. But Cooper then leaned toward her and whispered, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. The note was printed in neat, all capital letters of a felt pen. After she read it, Cooper took it back and invited Schaffner to sit next to him. He cracked open his briefcase, revealing eight red cylinders attached to a large battery with wires. He whispered to her his demands, which included $200,000 in, quote, negotiable American currency. That amount equals about $1.2 million today. He also demanded four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck to be standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon its arrival. Upon being filled in, pilot William Scott informed the Seattle airport, who called local and federal authorities. The pilot then informed the passengers that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a minor mechanical difficulty. Northwest Orient's president, Donald Nairob, authorized payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to fully cooperate with the hijacker. The aircraft circled Puget Sound for approximately two hours to allow Seattle police and the FBI time to assemble Cooper's parachutes and gather the ransom money, additionally to mobilize emergency personnel. They pulled the money from local banks, 10,000 unmarked $20 bills in total. Photographs were taken of each bill for tracking purposes. That's a lot of work for two hours. That's an insane amount of work. Seattle police then obtained both military and civilian-style parachutes from a local skydiving school. 
During this two-hour period, Cooper made several comments to Schaffner indicating he was familiar with the area, including that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from Seattle to Coma Airport. She would later describe him as a calm, polite, and well-spoken individual. He even paid his tab after ordering his second drink. <laughs> That's my favorite detail about this story. He hijacked a plane, but still felt it was worthwhile to keep, you know, to keep everything in check. At 5.24 p.m., Cooper was informed that his demands had been met, and the aircraft landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport just a few minutes later. Cooper instructed Scott to taxi the jet to an isolated, brightly lit section of the tarmac and to extinguish the cabin lights to deter police snipers. An airline official approached the aircraft and delivered a cash-filled backpack and the parachutes. Cooper then allowed all of the passengers and all but one flight attendant off of the plane. 22-year-old Tina Mucklow had been helping Cooper and the pilots communicate with each other, and he requested that she stay on board. Schaffner was allowed to leave. While the aircraft was being refueled, Cooper discussed his plan with the flight crew. This had a little meeting, I guess. He wanted them to fly to Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft, which was approximately 100 knots or 190 kilometers an hour, about 120 miles per hour. There's lots of lots of measurements there. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, he wanted them to fly at a maximum of 10,000 feet or 3,000 meters in altitude. He further specified that the landing gear remained deployed in a takeoff landing position, the wing flaps be lowered 15 degrees, and the cabin remain unpressurized. When informed they would only be able to fly 1,000 miles in such a configuration, he agreed to a refueling stop that would take place in Reno, Nevada. Now, critically, the Boeing 727-100 was equipped with a rear door and staircase that opened up underneath the tail of the plane. Cooper demanded they take off with this door open and the staircase extended, but the airline refused, saying it was far too dangerous. Cooper didn't argue, instead saying that he would lower it once they were airborne. The refueling in Seattle was delayed after the tanker truck had a pump failure. Cooper became suspicious, but allowed a second tanker truck to be used. During this time, he denied the FAA's request for a face-to-face meeting on the plane as he prepared for it to take off. We're all looking to be paid quickly and accurately for the work that we do. Heck, even Cooper paid up his bar tab. So if you invoice anyone as part of your work, FreshBooks is what you need. It has an intuitive and easy-to-use interface built for people who work online. You can become one of the 11 million people who get paid faster because of FreshBooks' integrations with a myriad of payment systems. And the invoices it creates looks great, are easy to deal with, and are simple to track. But don't just take my word for it. Go try out FreshBooks today by going to freshbooks.com slash to sign up for a 30-day free trial. And when you do sign up, make sure to then enter Ungenius in the How Did You Hear About Us section so they will know that you came to them from this show. Thanks to FreshBooks for their support of Ungenius. So now it is 7.40 p.m. The 727 takes off, heading south. Two F-106 fighter aircraft from nearby McCord Air Force Base follow behind the airliner, one above and one below, out of Cooper's view. After takeoff, Cooper told Mucklow to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the door closed. At approximately 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the aft air stair apparatus had been activated. The crew offered Cooper assistance via the aircraft's intercom system, which he refused. A few minutes later, the crew noticed a subjective change of air pressure, indicating that the aft door had been opened. 
At 8.13pm, the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement significant enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to level flight. It is thought that this is when Cooper jumped from the back of the aircraft. At this time, the aircraft was flying through a heavy rainstorm over the Lewis River in southwestern Washington. At 10.15pm, the 727 landed at the Reno airport with the rear door still open. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and the Reno police surrounded the jet and searched it, but Cooper was nowhere to be found. The FBI found Cooper's black clip-on tie and mother-of-pearl tie clip and two of the four parachutes aboard the plane. Interviews were had with everyone who interacted with Cooper, and a series of composite sketches were made. An Oregon man with a minor police record named D.B. Cooper was contacted by Portland police on the off chance that the hijacker had used his real name or the same alias as a previous crime. A local reporter named James Long confused the suspect's name with the pseudonym used by the hijacker. He wrote a story that was republished by Wire Media Services across the country. Even though the criminal used the name Dan, the name D.B. is now launched in everyone's mind because of James Long's mistake. It was very difficult to narrow down where Cooper may have landed. Even the slightest variation in speed or altitude or the moment Cooper pulled the ripcord could drastically change where he would have come down. The FBI themselves ran a test flight using the same aircraft in the exact same configuration. In their tests, agents pushed a 200-pound sled out of the back of the aircraft, replicating the upward movement that the pilots noted at 8.13pm on November 24th, therefore confirming the theory that that is the motion that was caused by Cooper jumping from the aft staircase at that exact time. Aerial searches along the flight path showed numerous broken tree traps and several pieces of plastic or other objects resembling parachute canopies. They were all investigated, but nothing relevant to the hijacking was found. After more extensive searching on the ground, including door-to-door searches of farmhouses, there was no trace of Cooper, nor any of the equipment presumed to have left the aircraft with him. Details on the cash used to pay off Cooper were widely circulated to banks, casinos, racetracks, and eventually to the general public. In 1972, two men used counterfeit $20 bills printed with Cooper serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter named Carl Fleming in an exchange for an interview with a man they falsely claimed was the hijacker. In the spring of 1972, teams of FBI agents aided by 200 army soldiers, along with Air Force personnel, National Guard troops, and civilian volunteers, conducted another thorough ground search for a total of 36 days. Local lakes were explored as submarines, even. Whilst this search did uncover the remains of a female teenager who had been abducted and murdered, no significant material evidence related to the plane hijacking was found. Sometime later, a pilot named Tom Bohan, who was flying the same route as Flight 305 just a few minutes behind it, discovered that the model put together by the FBI didn't take into account the direction of the wind that the pilot had noted on his flight. This pushed the search area further to the south out of the area the FBI had so thoroughly combed. This updated search area has been scoured repeatedly by private individuals and groups in subsequent years. To date, no discoveries have produced anything directly traceable to Cooper. Additionally, some investigators have speculated that the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens may have obliterated any remaining physical clues. Whilst all initial investigations haven't surfaced any evidence, some items have been recovered in years past. 
1978, a placard containing instructions for lowering the aft stairs of a 727 was found by a deer hunter near a logging road well north of the initial search area, but within the basic flight path of 305. In February 1980, an 8-year-old boy named Brian Ingram, vacationing with his family on the Columbia River, uncovered three packets of the ransom cash, significantly disintegrated but still bundled in rubber bands as he was raking the sandy riverbank to build a campfire. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom, two packets of $120 bills in each, and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as when given to Cooper. Initial statements by investigators and consultants were founded on the assumption that the bundled bills washed freely into the river from one of its nearby connecting tributaries. An Army Corps of Engineers hydrologist noted that the bills had disintegrated in a rounded fashion, and they were matted together, indicating they had been deposited by river action as opposed to having being deliberately buried in the bank where the boy found them. If these bills had freely washed down the river, it lends itself to the idea that the initial search area had indeed been incorrect. However, this theory presents its own problems and further complications. Ten bills were missing from one packet, and there is not a logical reason that the three packets would have remained together after separating from the rest of the money. If the money had been washed ashore, the rubber bands would have deteriorated, but being buried would have preserved the rubber from the elements. Some surmise that the money had been found at a distant location by someone, or maybe even a wild animal, carried to the riverbank and reburied there. Uh, One of the sheriffs involved proposed that Cooper accidentally dropped a few bundles uh, on the air stair, which blew off the aircraft and then fell into the river. And one local newspaper editor theorized that Cooper, knowing he could never spend the money, dumped it in the river or buried it there, and possibly elsewhere himself. Now, in the many years since the hijacking, the FBI has processed over a thousand serious suspects, including several deathbed confessions from people claiming to be Cooper. Out of these thousands, there are a handful of notable suspects worth mentioning. First up is Ted Mayfield, an Army Special Forces veteran with a record of armed robbery, transportation of stolen aircraft, and even negligent homicide. He was considered a suspect early, but ruled out after he called FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach, volunteering skydiving information he thought would prove helpful in catching Cooper. He died in 2015. Up next, we have Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. He was a Vietnam veteran with extensive helicopter piloting experience. On April 7, 1972, he staged a copycat hijacking of Flight 305 in Denver with a fake hand grenade and an unloaded handgun. He jumped from the back of his hijacked 727 over Utah, but was caught two days later with the ransom cash. He was sentenced to prison, but escaped in 1974 just to die in a shootout with FBI agents. A book came out in 1991 that labeled McCoy as Cooper, Uh, and included a quote from the FBI agent who killed him. The agent said, When I shot Richard McCoy, I shot D.B. Cooper at the same time. In 1995, Dwayne Webber confessed to his wife to being Cooper on his deathbed. She went to her local library to research D.B. Cooper and discovered notations in the margins of a book about the hijacking in her husband's handwriting. She reported that he complained of an old injury caused by jumping from a plane. In 1979, he took a walk along the riverbank in the Tina Bar area. Four months later, Brian Ingram made his ransom cash discovery right there. As there is no physical evidence to tie him to Flight 305, the FBI had to eliminate him as a suspect. 
William Gossett was a Marine Corps, Army, and Air Force veteran of both Korea and Vietnam. Late in his life, he reportedly told three of his sons, a retired Utah judge, and the Salt Lake City Public Defender's Office that he had committed the hijacking. This came after years of obsessively reading about the event. And while his appearance does roughly match that of the composite sketches, there's no evidence to even put Gossett in the Pacific Northwest at the time of the crime. He died in 2003. Well, if there are no credible suspects, what has the FBI said on the case? Well, in 2007, the FBI announced that a DNA profile had been obtained from samples on the tie pin found on the plane. But without a suspect, the sample did little good. They also disclosed that Cooper chose the older of the two primary parachutes supplied to him, and that from the two reserve parachutes, he selected a dummy, which is an unusable unit with an inoperative ripcord intended for classroom demonstrations. This was one of the four that was provided to him. It was clearly marked as such and would have been easily noted and discovered by any experienced skydiver. Now, the FBI has stressed that the inclusion of the dummy reserve parachute uh, was accidental. I don't know if I believe that or not, but they say that it was a mistake. I do believe it because I think Cooper chose to, to ask for four because he was trying to trick the FBI into thinking he'd be jumping with hostages. Right. Right. So like if you take that mindset, I don't think that they would have given a dummy parachute yeah. if it was going to be for a hostage. And also like I also assume that somebody who wasn't familiar with parachutes picked up these parachutes, right? Like it was an FBI point. agent, which is the same problem that Cooper then had. But anyhow... I digress. From 2009 to 2011, a team of civilian researchers dubbed the Cooper Research Team disclosed that they had found samples of pharmaceutical spores, bismuth, aluminium, and titanium on the Taipin. The findings suggest that Cooper may have been a chemist or metallurgist or possibly an engineer or manager in a metal or chemical manufacturing plant. The only employees who would have worn ties in such facilities at the time were those that would have held those positions. Uh, On July 8th, 2016, the FBI announced that it was suspending active investigation of the Cooper case, citing a need to focus its resources and manpower on more important cases. Of course, local offices will still accept evidence related to the hijacking. Over the 45-year span of its active investigation, the FBI has made public some of its working hypotheses and tentative conclusions. Now, over the years, the official physical description given by eyewitnesses has remained unchanged and is considered to be reliable. Experts say that Cooper's financial situation was very likely desperate, as extortionists and other criminals who steal large amounts of money nearly always do so because they need it urgently. Otherwise, the risk of doing it is not worth it. Agents also theorized that he took his alias from a popular Belgian comic book series from the 1970s featuring the fictional hero Dan Cooper, a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot who took part in numerous heroic adventures, including parachuting from planes. (laughs) Now, because the Dan Cooper comics were never translated into English or even imported into the U.S., they speculated that he may have encountered them during a tour of duty in Europe. The Cooper research team has suggested that Cooper may have actually been Canadian, as the phrase negotiable American currency is an unusual thing to say, if American currency is your currency. Um, And also, he may have then come across these comic books as they may have been imported to Canada because they could have been in French, for example. I like the idea that he used a comic book character name. Mm -hmm. It is thought that Cooper was a remarkable planner. He demanded four parachutes to force the assumption that he might compel one or more hostages to jump with him, as you said earlier, 
ensuring he would not be deliberately supplied with sabotaged equipment. He also chose to fly on a 727-100, as it was an ideal aircraft for a jump. Not only did it feature the after-air stair, which opened at the back when it could be in flight, but also the high afterward placement of all three engines followed a reasonably safe jump without the risk of incineration by the jet exhaust, so they were placed just perfectly for you to be able to jump out and survive. He knew that the after-air stair could be lowered during flight, a fact never disclosed to even civilian flight crews, and that it could not be overridden from the cockpit. It was also the only commercial jet airliner that could fly as low and as slowly as Cooper requested, again making the jump far safer. He even chose the date carefully as well. Cooper chose to do this on a four-day weekend. He would have had time to pull off the hijacking, make the jump, come out of the woods, and return to normal life on Monday morning. Now, the Cooper hijacking was the start of modern airport security measures. In 1972, numerous copycat hijackers took over Boeing 727s, and in almost all of these cases, the suspects were either killed or arrested within days of their hijackings. They ain't no Cooper. In early 1973, the FAA began requiring airlines to search all passengers and their bags. Multiple lawsuits charged that these searches violated Fourth Amendment protections against seizure and search, but federal courts ruled that they were acceptable when applied universally and when limited to search for weapons and explosives. While 1972 saw 31 hijackings in the United States, just two took place in 1973 after these searches were put into place. Now, to prevent the aft stairs from being lowered in flight, Boeing retrofitted the 727 with a spring-loaded device to keep the ramp closed in flight. This component is named the Cooper Vane. Cooper's airplane, the M467 US, was sold to Piedmont Airlines six years after the hijacking. In 1984, Key Airlines bought it and it was used to shuttle Air Force workers. Then in 1996, the 727 was scrapped for parts in Memphis, Tennessee. Hey, I should go find it. So I have a dream now that you go there, you find a wing, and then you turn that wing into a desk when we move into the world's littlest skyscraper. Deal. In 2013, uh, this is weird. In 2013, Earl Cossey, the owner of a skydiving school whose parachutes were given to Cooper, was found murdered in his home. Now, the killer remains at large, so of course, conspiracy theorists have claimed it's related to the Cooper case. Authorities have stated repeatedly that no such link exists. This case is weird, this whole thing. And it really caught the imagination of the public. In fact, D.B. Cooper is about as close to a household name as an airline hijacker has ever gotten. And as such, Cooper has appeared in numerous books, shows, and films over the years. A lot of, you know, deathbed confessions or people in jail saying, hey, I'm D.B. Cooper. Or, hey, my roommate is D.B. Cooper. Uh, he just He's really just held this place of imagination in the, in the public mind. This story, this story is just nuts, man. It really seems that Cooper was the kind of guy who knew what he was doing, and my gut says he got away with it. It doesn't surprise me, really, that this has been one that stands the test of time. No one of course, this is a horrible thing to do, and it's horrible to put all those people at risk. Kind of everything that Cooper did is kind of cool. Like, the way he went about everything has got this kind of, like, we can look back at it now being that amount of time ago, and it seems like almost a fictional story because it was so long ago, right? But it's just, like, the fact he took these drinks, he was smoking on the plane, and then he, like, paid his bar tab and jumped out in a suit after, like, pulling off his tie. It's all very, like, romantic looking at it now. 
But I do actually agree with you. I think he did get away with this because all of the seeds are sown for him being a meticulous planner. Like, clearly skydiving wasn't his strong suit. Like, that, this is something that has been established. But I still think that he pulled it off. And purely because the lack of evidence would suggest that nobody has ever really found anything tangible. And I also, one of the things that I can't shake is the 10 missing bills that were discovered from the bundles. Somebody took 10 $20 bills out of one of those bundles. Now, I can't imagine he did that on the plane unless he was, I don't know, paying for bar tabs of other people. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very strange. And even though they got the search box wrong at first, the fact that nothing has ever surfaced, I think, I think speaks a lot. So, so yeah, so D.B. Cooper. If you want to read more about this fascinating story, uh, we have some links on our website this week, relay.fm slash ungenius slash 16. You can get in touch with us there via email, or of course, you can find us on Twitter. The show is at ungenius. Mike is at I-M-Y-K-E, and you can find me there as I-S-M-H. And until our next weird story, Mike, say goodbye. Goodbye. Adios.